0: Our Father, we need to hear this word. We need transformation from this word. Too long we have dabbled with too many things that are destructive to our souls. And we ask that by this word of hope, this word of truth, that You would change us. Father, would You Give us an ability to fight against sin and to live for Christ. And so that in fighting against sin and, for, and in living for Christ, that you are exalted. And as you are exalted, might we find increasing satisfaction in you. This is a word for our age. This is a word for our church in America this day. We are so confused about sin and legalism and sin and righteousness. And Father, would you give us clarity as we think about your provision for us this day. Guide us. Give me clarity, wisdom, discernment as I unfold this word. Might, might what passes through my lips honor you and be truthful. We pray in the name of Christ and for His glory. Amen. In April of 1983, Robert Veerling of Winchester, Missouri, was found dead in his bed by his wife one morning. He was crushed to death by a 16-foot, 100-pound Burmese python. What was a Burmese python doing in his bed, you might ask? why, it was his pet. And Veerling's wife said that they had complete trust in the snake and often played with it in their bed. I'm curious about a lot of things, but playing with a python in my bed, or anywhere else for that fact, is not on my radar of curiosity. Yet as Donald Whitney points out in his book, Simplify Your Spiritual Life, Each of us lives with many unseen snakes, all more deadly than a Burmese python. These snakes, which are constantly with us, are called sins in the Bible. And the process of killing them is called mortification. How do you keep from getting killed by a python? Don't get a python. And if you have one, kill it before it kills you. How do you keep from being killed by your sin? Don't get a pet sin, and if you have one, kill it before it kills you. That's really the theme of Romans chapter 8 verses 12 and 13 that we looked at last week and we might simplify those verses into this singular statement to live in the spirit is to live aggressively against the flesh to to live Underneath and controlled by the Spirit of God means that we are going to live aggressively in fighting against the temptations of the flesh. To be alive in the Spirit is to be opposed to every manifestation of sin and the flesh in our lives. This is essential because, as A.W. Tozer has noted, the terrible part about crucifying the flesh is that the flesh is you. When the Lord says, mortify the flesh, He doesn't mean abuse your body by starving it or lying on beds of nails. He means put yourself on the cross. And that is what people do not want to do. But I do say this, Tozer writes, you had better mortify your flesh or your flesh will do something terrible to you. While Paul calls us to mortify the flesh in Romans 8, 12, and 13, he only hints at the process of mortification. And in the following verses, he'll, he'll give a couple of subtle hints as to what mortification looks like and how we do it. And, and he'll allude to further things starting in in chapter 12, but, but he never really lays out a process for how to kill sin, yet he does do that for us in Colossians chapter 3, and that's why I want to turn there both this Sunday and next Sunday to see what the Apostle Paul says about mortification and how it is that we might mortify the flesh. In this passage, we will find five ingredients of a life that mortifies the flesh. Five ingredients to a life that works at mortifying the flesh. Again, to live in the Spirit is to live aggressively against the flesh. How will we do that? First of all, Paul will say in verse 1, "...seek God as your primary desire." Seek God as your primary desire. Now, it's important to understand the context in which Paul is is writing. So maybe just turn back a page to Colossians chapter 2. And at the end of Colossians chapter 2, Paul is rebuking the Colossians for their moralistic self-righteousness and their legalistic attempts at righteousness. Listen to what he says in verse 20 of chapter 2. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world... So if you are connected to Jesus Christ, if you are in Him and He has granted to you His salvation, if you have been declared just or justified in Christ, then why does He say, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. In other words, why are you taking man-made teachings and why are you applying legalistic principles to how you are living your spiritual life if you are already in Jesus Christ? You can't fulfill the law. Why are you trying legalism in order to be sanctified and right before God? In fact, he says, these are things that seem beneficial but they're of no value against fleshly indulgence. Look what he says in verse 23. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. So... Self-made religion. I'll be righteous on my own and my own standards and I'll achieve the fulfillment of God's standards by my keeping of the law. And then he notes self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. That's asceticism. And so I'll deny myself to an extreme, even, even beating my body in order to try and please God. And notice what Paul concludes. He says, verse 23, these are of no value against fleshly indulgence. If you want to fight against sin, those things are of no value. Legalism will help you. Asceticism will not help you. It is is not even slightly valuable to fight against sin in that way. We need something far better, far more potent, far more powerful in order to fight against sin. So how does the believer fight against sin? That is what he answers in chapter 3, the first 17 verses. And that's what we want to look at these next two weeks. Notice he begins chapter 3 with the word, therefore. So that's coming off of what he has just said about legalism and asceticism. You can't be sanctified that way. You can't satisfy God in that way. What should you do instead? Notice what he says, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. If you have been raised up with Christ, what is is that a reference to except a reference to our identification with Christ through being baptized into His death and into His resurrection? Again, this is Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? We've been connected to His death over sin. And therefore, he says in Romans 6, 4, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So we've been connected with Him in His death and in His resurrection. We have been raised up with Christ is what Paul says in Colossians 3, 1. What he is about to say... My friends, just a side note, a quick note, is for believers in Jesus Christ only. If you will fight against sin in a way that honors God and proves beneficial to you, it only will be done for those who have been raised up with Christ. If you have not been raised up with Christ, if you are not connected to Jesus Jesus' death on the cross and His burial and His resurrection, if if you are not in Jesus Christ, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have not been declared to be justified, then everything that I'm about to say from this point forward for the next two weeks is of no value to you. This is only for those who are in Jesus Christ. You might be moral, but your morality, your legalistic morality that attempts To please God, Paul says, is of no value against fleshly indulgence. So you might be moral. You you might do things that appear to be right before this world, but you will still be unrighteous and you will be incapable of being righteous before God. And He will judge you as being unrighteous. Everything we're about to say will never help you until you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. So let me just lay it out there. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you must trust in Christ. That is your only hope. And friend, if you trust in Him, He will be your hope and He will change you. That, that's the one side. But, but notice the flip side as well. Paul says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, and, and the, the way he s- uses the word if... We think of, well, you might and you might not be, but as Paul thinks about the Colossian believers, he doesn't mean if so much as he means since. Since you have been raised up with Christ, you have been identified with Jesus Christ, you are trusting in Jesus Christ. Friend, if you are in Christ, everything that that is being said today and in this passage is exactly for you. And what should you do if you have been connected with Jesus Christ Notice what he says, if you are in Jesus Christ, if you're a believer, keep seeking the things above. That is, orient your will to the direct, and to the direction of your life to seek God. Pursue Him. Delight in Him. Satisfy yourself in Him. In fact, to seek to seek the things above is to seek Christ Himself. Notice what He says in verse, in verse one. Notice that He refers to Jesus Christ twice. He says, You've been raised up with Christ, that is, out of death and into life, but not only raised up into life, but notice what else He sees, says about Christ. He, Christ, is above. Christ is already in the heavenlies. And as we seek him, as we, as we raise our eyes up to heaven, what we are really pursuing is Jesus Christ and desiring to live in Him and with Him. Now, now just notice what the Apostle Paul says about Jesus Christ. He's, he refers to Him in three ways. We have been raised up with Christ. That is a reference to the things that Christ did at the cross. That's, that's looking backwards to the cross and Christ's work to affect salvation of those who would believe in Him. And then he also points to where Christ is presently seated at the right hand of God. He is even now carrying out His mission of authority over the world and over the universe and over all things. He is presently ruling and reigning as the sovereign God. And for Paul to say, keep seeking the things above, intimates that that Christ will continue to reign into the future. So so we are pursuing Christ past, present, and future. He is everything to us. He is always everything to us. To keep seeking the things above is to have as the basic orientation of my life to seek the things that are God-honoring, God-exalting, God-revealing, and to have christ as first place in my life. This, this is the goal and this is the intention that God had for Jesus Christ. Remember chapter 1 verse 18, Paul says about Jesus Christ, He is the head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. That is, He is the first one to be resurrected from the dead, never to die again, so that He Himself, why, why was Christ resurrected? so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. The apostle Paul wants us to see the priority of Christ and that that he is to be exalted in in every aspect of our lives. He says something similar in chapter 1 verse 10. He is praying for the Colossians. He says so that you will walk in a manner Worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects. You're to walk worthy of Christ, like Jesus Christ, pleasing Him in every way. Christ is everything to us. We live for Him. Notice that Paul also says, keep seeking things above. This is this is the ongoing pattern of our lives. This is, this is what we ought to perpetually be doing. And why does he say, keep on seeking the things above? Why does he say, you've got to keep on? Because, friend, the inclination of the natural heart is not to keep on. The natural inclination of the heart is to stop seeking Him and instead to seek our own satisfactions, whether by legalism or asceticism or by licentious living. And Paul says the pursuit of God should be the perpetual pattern of the believer's life. Why do we keep seeking Him? Because He is the eternally authoritative God who is over all things And who is the termination point of all things? Everything culminates in God. Everything terminates on Him. All of our salvation is consumed with Him. The whole purpose of God's creation of man is to make us holy, to glorify Him. This is why we have been saved, so that we can live for Him. Now we can live for Him instead of we must live for Him. We can we've been enabled to live for him and that is to be our delight the battle cry of one whose life is ori- oriented around jesus christ is articulated by paul in philippians 1:21 for me to live is christ he is the be all and the end all of our lives our attitudes ambitions our outlook on life are molded by our relationship with christ our allegiance to him Takes precedence over every earthly allegiance. My friends, the way we fight against sin will reveal how much our hearts are consumed with Christ and how much we long for Him. And so so we must cultivate that thirst, We, we must cultivate that passion. The fight against sin doesn't begin with fighting against sin. The fight against sin begins by delighting in God and pursuing Him. Consider what what the Psalmist David says in Psalm 27. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek. Everything that I have asked from the Lord boils down to one thing, one request. There's, there's one pursuit, there's one desire I have from God above all other things. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. One thing I want, it is to be with God And to be like God. I desire Him above all things. Why? Because He says in verse 5, Psalm 27, For in the day of trouble He will conceal me in His tabernacle. In the secret place of His tent He will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock, and now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. I will offer in His tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice and be gracious to me and answer me. There's only one thing worth pursuing in this life and that is fellowship with God, intimacy with Him, pursuing a desire with Him because only He can protect us, only He can keep us, only He can save us. That's what what David means by what he says in verses 2-7. through And then hear his summary, verse 8. When you said... Seek my face. My heart said to you... Now before I read what David says, how do you finish that sentence? When, you're, when you said to me, Seek my face, my heart said... What? David says, Your face, O Lord, I shall seek... There's only one thing that is worth pursuing. There is only one thing that is, that, is, that is worth life, and that is to seek God as the center of our lives or to live for Him and for His glory, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Don Whitney has said it this way, too much attention to a particular sin or sins and or too little attention to communion with God inevitably shrivel the soul of the Christian. It is imperative to pursue God as your singular primary desire in life because apart from that, your soul will shrivel. Your soul will not be drawn away from sin because you will have nothing great and grand and glorious to live for. And your sin instead will still look grand and glorious. What's the condition of your heart this morning? Let me just ask some questions. Is your allegiance to Jesus Christ? And what is the evidence of it? Am I satisfied with myself and the amount of remaining sin in my life? Or do I admit my need for God's righteousness? Am I satisfied with physical trinkets and external happiness? Or is righteousness and peace my joy? Do I pose and or run from things contrary to His righteousness? Do I crave God's Word? Do I categorize my sin? That is, do I convince myself that because I am innocent of flagrant, blatant sins, I am righteous? Or do I recognize the sins of a wayward heart that is judgmental and critical and inclined to anger and resentment, full of worry and anxiety, and prone to wander from the love of God? Do I unconditionally love God? That is, do I accept what He gives me and does my life no matter, and does And and do I accept what He gives and does in my life, no matter the demand on me? In my heart of hearts, in my heart of hearts, what or whom do I love most passionately? Until we learn to love God more than sin, and until we learn to love God more than the temptations of the flesh, we will never kill sin. Love of God will keep you from loving sin. Satisfaction with God will keep you from being satisfied with sin. Until we kill sin and regularly resist its temptations, we will not be attracted to God. The more satisfied we are with sin, the less satisfied we will be with God. We will only be dissatisfied with sin to the extent that we are satisfied You want to fight against sin today? Then you must, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. You must look to Him as your satisfaction. There's a second truth that Paul lays out for us in verses 2 through 4, and it is you must change the way you think about God You must not only pursue God as your primary desire, but you must also change the way you think about God. So Paul, in verses 2 through 4, is is building on the idea that he has laid out for us in verse 1. Pursue God. In what way should we pursue God? And Paul says that victorious living comes from the aim of following Jesus Christ and an inner disposition to follow Him. I like what one commentator says on this verse. He says, you must not only seek heaven, you must also think heaven. That's helpful. And the first thing that Paul will unpack for us in verses two through four is that you must be so heavenly minded that you will be of earthly good. Paul says, verse two, you must set your mind on things above, on, on the things that are in heaven. If, if you want to be changed from pursuing sin, if you want to fight back against sin, if you want to resist sin, Legalistic practices will never help you, but, but you must draw your attention to heaven and seek the things that are above. Well, what is in heaven? Or who is in heaven? Christ is in heaven, right? We just saw that in verse one. He is above, seated at the right hand of God. Christ is in heaven. The Father is in heaven. The Spirit and the Word are in heaven. We'll see that next Sunday. All righteousness and all truth are in heaven. All the blessings that flow from God and His righteousness are in heaven. The completion of our salvation and the fulfillment of God's purposes for mankind are in heaven. Everything that is eternal is in heaven to set our minds on things that are above is to echo what the apostle paul says in second corinthians chapter 4 verse 18 we look not at things which are seen but the things which are not seen for the things which are seen are temporal but the things which are not seen are eternal we stop gazing at things that are temporal and we look beyond them to the things and only the things that are eternal this is to recognize that nothing that we have on earth will be in heaven except for people. To make much of life on earth and to win the fight against sin, we have to consider what is of eternal value and eternal consequence. My friends, we give in to sin because we think that the object of our lusts is eternal and that heaven is temporal. Every time we engage in sin, we are saying, this is ultimate. This is what will last. This is eternal. And what is eternal really won't last. we need to focus our attention on what will really last and where our joy really will be. And just, just think about these things. In 100 years... The woman who is the object of your lust will be an undesirable skeleton in a coffin. In 100 years, the company you yearn to own will likely no longer exist. In 100 years, the technology that you, that you must have right now, the technology that is so essential to you, in 100 years will be as obsolete as a Model T Ford. In 100 years, the bank account you are seeking to build will be valueless. In 100 years, whatever is enticing you to pride or anger or covetousness or greed will not exist. In 100 years, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if if a day is as a thousand years in one hundred years, you'll have been in heaven less than three hours. That's a good thought. My friends, we lose the battle against sin. And we destroy relationships for the sake of our sinful indulgences We because we believe that relationships are, are temporal and possessions are eternal. And we have it exactly backwards. We must look to the things that are above when we are fighting against sin and we must remind ourselves of what will last and what will be destroyed. If we are going to mortify sin, if we're really going to push against sin, it is going to be through intentional meditation on Jesus Christ and our position in Jesus Christ, which is what we will see in verse 9. Our problem is that our tendency is not to think we just we're just cruising through life not paying any attention a, f- a few weeks ago two three weeks ago Regine and i were on our way to fort worth and going to an appointment there and we're just toodling down the road and we're talking about what's going on and and all of a sudden Regine says to me in a very quiet voice where where are you going oh i'm going to such and such a place Oh, I guess I'm not going to such and such a place, am I? And I realized that the reason for her question was because I was going in the exact opposite direction. Why? Because I was on cruise control. I'm just going to Fort Worth and I'm going down the road that I always go down when I'm going to Fort Worth. I was on autopilot. And friends, that's exactly what happens when we engage in sin. We're just not thinking. We just kick it into autopilot and say, we'll just let, we'll just let nature take its course and we'll just slide down this pathway. And friend, if you're going to pull out of that pathway towards sin, you must set your minds on things above. In order to be of earthly good, we are going to have to set our minds and our hearts on Christ and heaven and what is eternal and let those thoughts dictate and guide our decisions against sin. And Paul identifies a couple other ways that we ought to think about God in verses 3 and 4, and that is to consider your life in Christ and to consider your life as Christ. Consider your life in Christ and to consider your life as Christ. Christ is not merely the means for our forgiveness from sin. Christ is the power for our fight against sin. And that power is made available to us through our identity with Him. So notice what Paul says in verse 3. For you have died Now, obviously, he doesn't mean that literally, because if they really have died, if their physical bodies have died, they can't be reading the letter. So he's not talking about something physical. What does he mean? He means that our life has been identified with Christ through His identification uh, or through His overcoming sin through His death, burial, and resurrection. Again, Romans chapter 6. And by the way, have you noticed over the, the past weeks how often We're going back to Romans chapter 6. It is just one of the critical passages in all of Scripture for us to understand our identification with Christ and what He has provided for us. We've been buried with Him, verse 4, to walk in newness of life. Verse 5, For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him. Why? In order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves of sin. We've been baptized into Christ. That baptism simply means we've been identified with Him. We're connected to Him. We are one with Him and He is one with us with with His death, burial, and resurrection the purpose of that union with Him, we've already noted, is so that we would not walk in a sinful lifestyle. We'll walk in a new way, in a new pattern of living. And the purpose of our unity further, he says in verses 5 and 6, is so that we would be enslaved to Him and not enslaved to sin. And again, notice what he says. He says, our old self was crucified with Him. Past tense. It's completed. It's finished. It's happened. And in fact, that's the very same emphasis that Paul makes in Colossians 3 3. For you have died. You've been connected with Him. He has been victorious over sin. You're no longer enslaved to sin. You no longer have to sin. So what Paul is alluding to in chapter 3 verse 3 is this that if you pursue sin, you are pursuing the things to which you've already died and for which Christ died. Why are you letting those things still harm you? When we were identified with Christ's death, we were given power over sin. The the condemning sins that controlled us no longer control us. So so Paul says, don't continue in those things. In fact, he he adds to it at the end of verse 3, you have died and... Your life is hidden with Christ in God. That is, you are with Christ. You have a a common life with the Father and with the Son already. He is your protection from the world and from all spiritual foes. We won't take the time to read it, but, but just remember everything that he says at the end of Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. Who can be against us if Christ is for us? We're in Him. We're hidden with Him. We're protected by Him. He is our safekeeping. But our life is not only with Christ. Our life is not only hidden in Christ. But notice now verse 4. Our very life is Christ. When Christ, He says, who is Christ? our life we should think of ourselves in relation to sin as not only as not only being in Christ but we need to think about our lives as being focused in every way around Jesus Christ he is our life again philippians 121 for me to live is Christ And when I am living for Christ, then dying is gain. Why? Because when I get to heaven, what do I get? Christ. And so it becomes gain because I have lived for Him here, I delighted in Him here, and He is what I will have in eternity. Says the Puritan Richard Sibbs, we are poor only for this reason, that we do not know our riches in Christ. Not only do we have life with Christ, and by Christ, and through Christ, but the intimacy is so close that it can be said that He is our life. He is living His life through ours. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. and It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live by faith in the Son of God is... Um, uh, I hate it when that happens. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. The life I live, I live by Christ. It's Him living in me. Now, now if I'm a frustrated 55-year-old baseball player and I'm still pursuing a dream... of of a baseball career, and I am pursuing that dream through my Son, that's of no benefit to me or to my Son. But if it is Jesus Christ who is living His life through me, that is eternal value to me and to us. And then notice verse 4, that the revelation of all of Christ's glory... When He is revealed, when we see Him in all of His fullness, then Paul says, you also will be revealed with Him in glory. His glory will be revealed to us in heaven, and at that same time, our own justification and our own glorification will be revealed in heaven. And my friends, this is the motivation and this is the power for living renewed, sanctified, unindulgent lives. Because we live for Him and we live to see Him. To win the fight against sin, we must purposefully, intentionally think about our relationship with Christ. We must think about why He died. Did He die to liberate me from this action Never to do this again or did he die to liberate me from this so that I can do something else? Honestly, I ask myself that question with great frequency. Terry, did Christ, did Christ die so that you can indulge in this action? Did did Jesus Christ die so that you can be prideful and self-exalted? Did Jesus Christ die so that you can indulge in this anger? Or did Jesus Christ die so that you might serve your wife? It's a question worth asking. Christ is your life. A few weeks ago, I was getting a little bit cranky at home. My, my, my schedule was, was full. It was, it was full of good things, but... But it was full. And and Regine's schedule was full. Again, full of full of lots of good things, but but it was full. And and our family's life was was full. And we were being pulled in all kinds of different directions. And and while while I was at home most nights and while we would say goodnight, crawl into bed next to each other, conk out, wake up in the morning, kind of roll over, hit the ground. And then stand up and try and keep going. We weren't having substantive conversations. We weren't having relaxing meals. One of the, one of the things Regine and I like to do is a couple times a month, we've got a favorite spot that we like to go to in Granbury. In fact, we were there yesterday, Saturday morning breakfast. And it's, it's just our time to unplug. We, 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 even if our kids are home, we don't invite them to go with us. That's our time. And we just sit there, enjoy way too many calories, way too much cholesterol. But we just sit there, glass of tea, cup of coffee, and talk. That's our private time. And it had been like eight weeks since I had had that time with Regine at that particular restaurant. And in all honesty, I was getting just a little bit cranky about it. I'd set aside one Saturday, I said, Regine, we are going to breakfast this Saturday. Ring, ring, telephone. Hey, Dad, how about on Saturday we... There goes breakfast. I told her, okay, they are intruding on our schedule. Thursday morning, I am going to work late and we are going to breakfast. I must have time with you. Friend, are you cranky? about your lack of time with Christ. Do you you yearn for Christ in that same way? Are you sorrowful and sad and longing for Him when you are pressed for time? My friends, if you and I are going to kill sin, we must consider our identity with Christ and we must consider Christ as our very life. We must not only change the way we think about God and Christ, but... But we also must think about the way we think about sin, change the way we think about sin. And that is where we will go next week. Consider what um, William Tyndale wrote in his prologue to the book of Romans when he translated the New Testament. He says this about our position in Christ. First, behold yourself diligently in the law of God, and see there your just damnation. Secondly, turn your eyes to Jesus Christ and see there the exceeding mercy of your most kind and loving Father. Thirdly, remember that Christ made not this atonement that you should anger God again. Neither did He die for your sins that you should still live in them. Nor did He cleanse you that you should return as a swine unto your old puddle again but that you should be a new creature and live a new life after the will of God and not the flesh. Christ died to redeem us from sin, to empower us to fight against sin. And that fight against sin comes, begins by being enraptured with Him and contemplating Him. Our Father, we thank You for the reminder of these words from this passage. And there's a simplicity here and in a sense of complexity in that we don't do this the way we ought. And so this morning as we leave, we ask that you would drive us and compel us to consider our position in, in God and in Christ. And Father, might not we not only look up to heaven, but might we look up to heaven and specifically to Jesus Christ and yearn for Him and long for Him. And as we long for Him, would You change us and transform us into those who look like Him. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and for His glory. Amen.